Welcome back to the Governance Podcast. My name is Sam DeCanio. I'm the Associate Director of the Center for the Study of Governance and Society at King's College London. Today's guest is Zeynep Pamuk, who is an Assistant Professor in the Department of Government at the London School of Economics. Zeynep holds a PhD in Political Science from Harvard and a BA from Yale. Her research focuses on democratic theory, the role of expertise in politics, and the impact of artificial intelligence and automation on democracy. Dr. Pamuk's first book, Democracy and Expertise, How to Use Science in a Democratic Society, was published with Princeton University Press in 2021. This book studies the relationship between science and democracy and examines questions about democracy and the funding of scientific research, the use of science in decision-making and its applications in new technologies. Zainab, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. So much of your work involves big questions regarding the relationship between democracy and expertise. How did you get interested in these themes and were there any specific authors or thinkers that influenced your ideas or how you approach these issues? I first started looking into these issues because I was concerned about climate change as perhaps the problem of our time. And I was interested in finding an answer to the question of why despite there being piling scientific evidence and moral philosophy that showed that addressed who should bear the burden of mitigation and whether we should focus on adaptation or mitigation, despite the pileup of, sorry, can I start again? Absolutely. Just okay. I won't do this again. <laughs> I don't know. Don't worry. Don't worry about it. And and maybe what we should do is just we can just cut out. We can pause. We can cut out everything that you said after I asked the question, and we can just start up your answer again from from the beginning. And Great. don't don't worry about this at all. If this happens a couple of times, okay. Feel free. I started getting interested in these issues because I was worried about climate change as perhaps the problem of our time. I was trying to understand why there wasn't an effective political solution around it, despite there being piling scientific evidence, as well as moral theories that address the issue of who ought to bear the burdens of mitigation and adaptation. I thought the key was understanding the role of science and scientists in political life and trying to explain why this relationship between science and politics was so problematic. I started reading around in philosophy of science. My background is in politics, but I was interested in philosophers and historians of science, such as Kuhn and Feyerabend. And then I followed that line of that area of literature to feminist philosophers of science who were interested in showing how science involves value. Science itself is objective, perhaps, or that it, it can be perspectival, that it incorporates the background assumptions, value commitments, and non-epistemic values of the scientists who are studying it. I found this fascinating, and I thought this has to be relevant to the problem of the uptake and use of science in politics. My aim was not to contribute to the philosophy of science in this area, but to take these theories to reflect upon their political implications. And that is what the book tries to do. And so that's a, a really interesting explanation of how you became interested in the sort of philosophy of science and the sociology of knowledge side of the question. How did you then wind up combining that interest with your interest in democratic theory? Part of it came from my thinking that 
what was problematic about how science is used has something to do with the production of scientific knowledge and its its standing. That what we're getting is not just objective fact, that what we're getting is can be true, but it's also always partial and incomplete and uncertain and involves values. So this was the bridge I built between the literature and philosophy of science that questions the, the assumption that science can be taken as straightforwardly um, objective truth and the idea that there's something problematic about how we use it in the, the political realm. So I started from the politics part, trying to figure out why we have so much trouble understanding, or as other people put it, accepting scientific evidence, why there's denial. And I thought the problem is not that there is an objective fact and people are denying it. It's more complicated than that. I mean, there, there are elements of that. There are some people are doing that, but I think the discussion should be more nuanced. So I wanted to look at the scientific side of it and then think through how that affects its politicization. So many of the arguments that you make in your book are framed around Weberian ideas about expertise and about bureaucracy and bureaucratic rationality. Could you explain just a little bit, what are some of the, what are some of Weber's key ideas that you sort of critically engage with and where do you see yourself agreeing with him or, or, or perhaps deviating from him? The main Weberian idea that I engage with is his division between fact and value and his claim in his work science as a vocation that there can be an objective value neutral social science so he's interested in social science but i i think the argument also carries over to natural science now he might not think that the social science in his time or, or social science in the future might attain that kind of objectivity or value neutrality but he thought it was possible to strive for it and that scientists ought to strive for it and that this distinction between the the factual or scientific realm and the value-based realm should organize the institutional structure or a division of labor between bureaucracy or expertise on the one hand and politics and leadership on the other. So on this fact-value distinction, he builds a, a kind of political ideal where the bureaucracy engages in the, the rational, technical, administrative tasks and political leaders tasked with moral judgment, bringing in the, the values necessary for political decision making and taking responsibility for it. And this organizes the way we think about the relationship between expertise and politics down to today. Even though philosophers have challenged the tenability of the ideal of a value-free science, the ideal itself as an ideal, as something to be approximated, as a regulative ideal to be aimed for, remains very powerful. And we can see this in both the discourse of scientists and social scientists themselves, that this is what they try to do. They try to produce knowledge and understanding rather than bringing in values. And also in the discourse, in the popular discourse about what the role of experts, scientists should be in the political realm. And I wanted to think about what questioning the, the fundamental premise that the, the fact value distinction, while it exists, isn't as, as clear cut. If we challenge that, what do we make of the ideal? Do we need to rethink how the division of labor works? And my answer is yes. We don't 
get rid of the division of labor entirely. Scientists will be producing the knowledge by and large and politicians, policymakers will be making the decisions, but we need to think about what to do about the middle ground where the values and facts intersect. So, and in that sense, how, so how would you describe the legitimate scope of scientific expertise? So it, it may be indeed that in practice, it's more difficult perhaps to separate factual statements from value judgments and value judgments might still enter into scientific analysis. But, but how would you deal with defining what the legitimate scope of scientific expertise would be, even if we accept that in practice those two types of, of judgments or those two divisions in, in, in knowledge might, might be less clear than, than some people perhaps suggest? I don't propose a very radical rethinking of, of what scientists are meant to do in the sense that they are supposed to, to produce knowledge that has some relevance on policy. I mean, not, not just, they can also do science that's irrelevant for policy, but that they advise policymakers in areas of, of political interest. So all of that remains, but I my argument is about how we treat the scientific advice or the expert advice that's given. And I think we need to treat it as as a lot more uncertain, incomplete, partial, perspectival than we do, that we should de-emphasize the idea that scientists just reach a consensus that we take as sort of the, the factual grounds for decision-making and build policies based on that, bring in the values. I think the, the fact that the facts and values are, are intermingled suggests that the political side of the process has to take on a lot more responsibility in scrutinizing the scientific advice that is delivered, examining its key assumptions, its values, what kind of perspective it takes, how it has been framed, whose interests it might serve, and to expose all of these judgments and to, to rethink whether and for what purposes it's actually good for and and question it under circumstances where citizens might have different commitments, different values. So to be a lot more critical about the science, to, to understand bases and open it up for much more political scrutiny. So if, if we accept that scientists may often themselves disagree about what the implications of knowledge actually might be, if there, if there might just be, for example, disagreements about what the what 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 scientific knowledge tells us about the most appropriate response whether it it comes to an issue involving covid or whether it involves the federal reserve's decisions about interest rates doesn't that create situations where politicians that are trying to fight for certain values or for certain for certain interests doesn't that open up the possibility that they can pick and choose which scientific experts they're going to cite in order to defend their preferred political positions? I think it definitely does make that possible, but insofar as, as scientists do actually disagree, then perhaps that is the right way for politics to be conducted. Because if there, if there is genuine scientific disagreement, rather than say something just fabricated to undermine science, and I, I certainly recognize that distinction, for example, in the climate case, but say taking something like COVID-19 or other areas where there's a lot of uncertainty and scientists actually do disagree, then yes, the right way to approach it is for politicians to examine their values, to think about the values of the citizens that they're representing 
and then think about whether the the science on offer assumes those values if it contradicts it in the sense that the the research itself is built on some some value premises that are fundamentally different and alien and then think about the implications of that for which policies they they can support now i understand that this this does open the door for manipulation, but the, the risk of manipulation is always there. And of course, you have to think about the alternative case where scientists would otherwise have the power to shape their advice based on what they think ought to be done. So if you have to build a consensus out of a, a scientific field that is that is in disagreement, then what you're doing is essentially thinking about what, what we ought to be aiming for and then build a consensus around it in order to bring about policies um, that the scientific community might favor. So in, in both cases, there are risks. There's no risk-free, perfect solution to this. And we have to recognize that. Okay, so that, that brings me to the next question that I have for you, which is how do you how do you describe the, the, the problems that expertise poses for democracy? So we've been discussing science versus politicians. But what is it that expertise might do that might that might pose challenges for de for for democratic citizens and democratic debate? The main source of the problem is that science relies on a different source of authority than democratic politics. Science traces its authority back to to truth, whereas democratic politics fundamentally derives its authority from the agreements of a majority of citizens. So scientific facts are not up for majority vote in the same way. So they have a kind of power in the political realm for determining certain issues through truth claims rather than opening them up for deliberation, debate, contestation. So one worry is that the power of experts pushes out the role of deliberation, contestation, and um, more political forms of decision making by turning political issues into those that can be settled through the right method, through access to truth. But there's another issue, which is which goes back to some of the, the things I was mentioning about the role of values in science, which is that what we're getting is not, even though science comes with the, the authority of truth, what you're getting is not the whole truth, it may not even always be true, but it's certainly not the whole truth and it's often uncertain and value laden. So there's the added problem that what is presented as, as coming with the authority of science is often less than you know objective knowledge. So in that respect, what might be driving scientific advice might be greatly influenced by scientists' own value commitments. And in this way, the values of scientists get to drive or influence political debate through a route that is not open to other citizens whose truth claims do not are, are taken as essentially their opinion. They don't come to the political conversation with the standing and status of an expert. So that's, that's a very interesting way of, of putting it. It's it's you're sort of suggesting that um, information that scientific experts sometimes present is can be presented in such a way that it's it's masquerading as truth claims and sort of ignoring the, some of some of the sort of details associated with the, the actual nature of scientific inquiry i suppose i wanted to ask how would you respond to somebody that accepted that description of scientific knowledge but responded by saying what what science does is that 
it includes certain checks on the truth claims that experts make. That there is the the basis of the scientific method involves logical reasoning, things like using experiments to assess the the validity of hypotheses. And even if it is the case that scientists might not be the you know conform to the to the stereotypes of the dispassionate objective truth seekers, the key thing about science is that there is an error correction mechanism that's built into the nature of scientific inquiry. What would your response to be to somebody that 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 sort of agreed with your description of the process but in, but it but but said even though that's the case the key thing about science is not, not you know the fallibility of the individual scientists but it's the system of knowledge analysis that's considered legitimate in scientific in inquiry. Yes, that's a very powerful objection and I I would agree with that person that that goes a long way and that is actually the the reason why science is by and large producing reliable knowledge that we can use for political purposes, that its its claims can help us make effective interventions and so on. So this is not about pushing science outside of the, the realm of politics. The starting point is to, to say science can offer this because of its, its very effective mechanisms of, of verifying, of experimentally deriving testing knowledge claims and so on that it can be very helpful however i think even after these processes are conducted and even assuming that they're conducted you know very effectively or at least you know up to, to regular standards if not perfectly there is a remainder which is that the scientific community is composed of of people with certain commitments they are very highly educated there is certainly they're not demographically representative. They're not representative in terms of political views these days, but also just the education and the scientific way and, and <clears throat> going through all those years of training gives them a certain shared perspective as experts. And also disciplinary commitments that organize what a certain discipline does and what its purposes are can also shape the kind of knowledge they produce. Some disciplines are very oriented towards certain particular purposes or orientations towards nature or biology or the human body. You know, in, in medicine, there is a, a name of, of treating humans. I mean, I'm not I'm not raising questions about the validity of any of this, but, you know, environment, certain areas of environmental studies might have a preservationist tendency. So different areas of science do have shared commitments about purposes. And when it comes to using science for, for policy, some of these purposes may not align with the purposes of other people. And of course, another important thing is that scientists are always oriented toward discovering truth, whereas politics is about making decisions about action. And that, that might lead to long-term, short-term distinctions, that might lead to prioritizing evidentiary thresholds that are perhaps too high for certain purposes. In some cases, it might be not high enough if the stakes in, in practical life are very. There are contextual issues where, you know, getting abstract scientific claims into to local context might require a certain kind of additional set of assumptions about what makes it appropriate for this context, and scientists may not do those well. So there are a host of reasons why there is a remainder that the peer review process and science's very effective internal mechanisms of getting to truth or testing the reliability of knowledge claims just is not enough to make them directly 
applicable without further scrutiny for political purposes. Okay, and so so what do you what is the role that you sort of see the public playing in this process? So so what do you what is the the sort of what is the what do, what do you think the public can add to the decision making process that that's involving both politics and scientific expertise? I think they can be more involved in scrutinizing the scientific aspect, and this will require changes in in the institutions that deliver advice. And I have some some very concrete proposals for making that possible. It can involve paying more attention to science and scientists, thinking critically about the kinds of claims that are made. But I don't want to say this is just the role of citizens. This is also about, about rethinking, rethinking the division of labor between scientists on the one hand and policymakers and politicians on the other hand as well. So some of these tasks of scrutiny, of criticism, of examining science can be taken on by politicians. Now that has its limitations as well, given some of the, the problems with the way politics works. So I think an active role for citizens can be helpful for addressing some of those issues. So I see the role of citizens as, as being active scrutinizers as participating. I mean, they don't have to participate in all issues all the time, but especially in more local cases. And many of the, the scientific issues that get politicized are about the environment or health. And, and these issues do take on a, a local shape and are very of, of great interest to, to citizens, especially when it directly concerns them. So I, I envision a more active role in engaging with the science. They're not necessarily, they're not producing science, but they're engaging with scientific claims insofar as they have implications for policy decisions. So you've made the argument that you think that there should be greater democratic oversight of the funding of science. Could you explain this argument a little bit? All, the, all of the, the claims I've been making about the role of values in science and so on are most obvious and I think perhaps least controversial when it comes to the, the selection of issues to, to study. Even those who say actually the scientific process, the internal steps of the scientific process are free of values, they will admit that the selection of questions, the prioritization of certain areas over others, is a deeply value-driven area. So what we what scientists will study, which questions they will answer, what they will, will put more funding towards, shapes the kind of knowledge we get. And I think this is an incredible power, the, the power to, to determine what sorts of answers we might get, what we might know, and by implication, what we will remain ignorant of, which problems or whose problems we will remain unable to solve because we don't have the scientific or technical knowledge to do so. That's a great power. And funding bodies basically hold this power. Scientists also driven by their curiosity and so on, but given that scientific research today depends greatly on the availability of large amounts of funding. Funding bodies are really the, the key players in this. So I think any attempt to, to democratize science or to, to question the, the values driving scientific knowledge have to focus on the funding stage. And I argue for democratizing that stage. And so specifically, what would that involve? Do you see that as being as as voters having a role, sort of like a jury, where there's their deliberations after they're presented with information? Do you see there being, you know, an election elections that occur where different different groups of doctors are are advocating for certain projects to be funded and not others? 
How would you actually describe how that democratizing process would work when it comes to funding decisions for science? So I actually don't go so far as to say that a jury of citizens should just look at the proposals presented to them because a lot of these proposals are are very technical and citizens will not have the the competence to to look through evaluate the quality and so on i i think the role of citizens is perhaps at the the meso level so there, there's very broad allocation of funds at the moment by policymakers i think there's room for more specific allocation being determined by priority so instead of like climate science yes or no we can be more specific about which regions whether we look at mitigation or adaptation how local are we more interested in in, in sea rise issues versus so i think there's some role at the meso level for priority setting after that though i actually introduce an element of randomization so instead of leaving it to scientists to determine based on some idea of scientific quality i say why don't we try to to encourage as much diversity within a certain issue area so that we get a broader range of 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 values of perspectives into the game so that it's not driven by whatever is the the mainstream view within science in order to to open it up for contestation because criticism challenge finding dissenting views within science are really critical for a different a wider range of perspectives to be opened up for for public debate as well and if the the science is not sufficiently open to these new perspectives then then we'll have a problem with the political side as well so i have a kind of two-tier proposal which is maybe not best described as democratizing funding but it is dealing with both a an issue about more democratic input and an issue about preventing and a monopolization of of approaches and allowing for diversity so would, would you draw any analogy between the role that you think the public should play in having influence over decisions about science funding and the relationship that exists between doctors giving advice to their patients? I'm just wondering if there are analogies here between the role that expertise is playing versus the individuals or the societies that are going to be dealing with the effects of that expertise. I think there are definite parallels, but perhaps the greater difficulties in the political realm come from the 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 lack the disparallels or the differences. Because in the the in the physician-patient relationship, also there are the issues of the patient perhaps having different views about what is good for her, maybe a different conception of you know what's what's tolerable or what's painful a different trade-off between you know living with this disease versus getting a risky surgery and so on and insofar as as physicians make judgments based purely on the science whatever that might mean make that is making assumptions about what's best and and kind of going forward only with scientifically agreed goals or approaches then we will have a problem but that problem perhaps can be addressed more easily by by just realizing this issue and then having a conversation or encouraging more attention to the patient's preferences, risk trade-offs, values, and so on. So the problem is analogous, but the solution may be a bit easier. In the political realm, there isn't one actor. There are millions of different citizens with, you know, each has their own set of values, or at least there are, there are many different groups with, with different values and political commitments. And of course, they have to, to reach an agreement of some sort or at least pick a position. Well, 
they or their representatives about what is best, what is good, what is acceptable, tolerable, what, what kinds of risks we can live with, whose needs do we prioritize? And of course, that's the, the area where it gets really complicated because you have to make these, you have to resolve these political issues, these issues of representing different, different groups, which you don't deal with when you have one patient and one physician. So a number of studies have drawn attention to how little information voters have regarding public policy. Do you see any of these findings or any of these arguments as having implications for some of the ideas that you're that you're advancing? Yes, of course. So they do pose some challenges to the views that I'm putting forward because it suggests that some of the the roles that I envision for citizens in um, with respect to the use of expertise in politics may just be beyond their competence. So I try to think about ways in which, well, so first of all, I think if you if we're committed to democracy, we kind of have to work with the citizens we've got rather and and that can that doesn't preclude you know improving levels of education, of understanding of science and so on. But at the end of the way, and at the end of the day, I don't see this as a reason to say, um, well, maybe we should just not listen to citizens or not have democracy. I think I'm committed to democracy and that requires thinking about what we can do to improve democratic processes by taking into consideration the limits on citizens' understanding, on their competence, on their time. And in some cases, this might be solved by having kind of a narrower expectation of how many issues they have to attend to, what forms of participation they are able to take on. And this might mean, you know, issue by issue, you can have experiments or I propose a science court that involves some very small portion of citizens attending and really listening and understanding the science. And I think in a, in a context like that, understanding is not beyond reach. Then with the, the right kinds of communication methods, you can reach citizens and then they will understand. But of course, that's a very kind of luxurious form of participation that is not always available. So I think it depends on the issue and it changes with the stakes. We know that citizens can become much more competent and attentive if issues really directly concern them. And of course, I think some of the the social media and the, the discourse in the public sphere is really polluting the informational transfer and the possibilities for understanding. So we have to think a bit more creatively about institutions that facilitate the transfer of knowledge of understanding. And I think face-to-face -face, kind of old fashioned way can have its advantages while I also recognize its limitations. So I'm interested in these democratic experiments, looking at things that work, looking at the empirical evidence that people come up with for suggestions on how to improve it. I'm concerned by it, but I don't think it, it justifies kind of going back on citizens having an active role in a democracy, which I think is really the bedrock of a democratic system. So I'm, I'm glad you mentioned communication and social media. And I guess it raised another question in my mind, which is there are many concerns that have been raised about voters perhaps not necessarily being uninformed, but being biased or being hyper-partisan. And I guess I was wondering, do you think that any of these concerns and and the raise any any questions about democratic debate falling short of our ideals? Or do you worry that there would be any pathologies that might in, be introduced into the scientific process if democratic deliberations are, are introduced into funding decisions or into the assessment of scientific knowledge? 
Yes, I'm certainly concerned about hyperpartisanship and the idea that people just pick their positions based on, you know, whatever their their political affiliation suggests they do. And I think if if we knew that were the case for all issues at all times, then a that would that would be very bad for democracy. Maybe we are headed there. Maybe we're already there on, on many issues, and that is that is bad for democracy. And b it would definitely raise some concerns about opening up even more areas of of policy issues for democratic input, because that means they will also get treated in this kind of football team approach. But I think one of the the things that scientific issues are different on is that they're not entirely partisan in this way. Some issues can cut across the aisle. I mean, environmental issues used to be more like this. In some issues about health and technology, you find kind of surprising alliances. And it's also not clear when and who will find themselves opposing a group of scientists who are putting forward some view. So I think that's one of the interesting things about how the politics plays out on issues, especially the ones I'm interested in that are related to science. And I find that to be healthy. And some of the, the more participatory approaches that bypass party politics can be helpful in encouraging these cross-cutting alliances and bringing out values that do not necessarily map exactly onto the partisan divide. So it's interesting when when things don't really fall into place as we would expect or predict. And I think in, in some issues around science, we see this. Now, climate change is an exception. That That is a very politicized partisan issue. But on other issues that involve science, I think the divide isn't so clear-cut at all. Interesting. Okay, so all of these arguments are sort of addressing very, very important claims about about expertise, science, and democracy. And you just completed this this very significant project and published them as a in, a, in this in this wonderful book. What are you currently working on? How did these interests? How are these interests? You know, influencing the current research that you're working on. And can you give us any information about about where things are going from here? I'm moving more in the direction of technology. So it's, it's kind of a, a natural next step, science and then technology, looking at artificial intelligence and automation and how that changes democracy, the threats it might pose to the democratic process. And I see some clear continuities about the role of values, the role of expert systems in changing how political processes work. But I also see some interesting new trends or patterns and in some ways artificial intelligence systems are replacing experts so what becomes automated are the experts themselves whether they're physicians or financial experts or judges so that's that's a pretty interesting trend and of course prediction takes on a very important role so some of the work i'm doing i'm, I'm working on a few papers at the moment and and hope to have a book project on this both about the the meaning of explanation and accountability in this context and how that differs from from the explanation that experts give for the the complicated scientific research that they do and also about information and knowledge and how for example search engines transform our intake of knowledge and the kind and what happens when algorithms instead of experts start shaping the the knowledge ecosystem for democracy and do you see algorithms as offering a hopeful solution or are they going to lead us to a dystopian a dystopian future? What's your prediction? 
I don't know. I'm I'm definitely concerned at the moment, leaning pessimistic, but I also don't want to rule out that that they might be rethought in a way that's more hopeful for democracy. So maybe maybe cautiously hoping to become optimistic. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Well, we'll see. We'll see what the, how the, how accurate the prediction winds up being. Hopefully, you're right. Thank you so much for taking the time to discuss your work with us, and we hope to have you back at some point in the future. Thank you so much for your questions and for the invitations. It was a great conversation.